0: Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. So, you know, the next hour, we're going to figure out what happened this week and what it all means. And we do that with a panel of journalists. This week, it's Publicola publisher and editor, Erica C. Barnett. Hey, Erica. Hey, Bill. The stranger, associate editor, Rich Smith. Rich, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bill. Washington State Wire publisher, DJ Wilson. Welcome back. Thanks for coming.
1: Hello, and thanks for having me.
0: Of course, here on the first week of September. By the way, did anybody know that meteorologists call this the first week of autumn? Yeah. Well, they I would did be did not wrong. know that.
2: That I, seems incorrect.
0: That seems... It. So, <laughs> September... So, I think of autumn as starting on the, uh, the uh, autumnal equinox, uh, which is the September 22nd this year. That's astronomical autumn, and astronomically... The seasons are kind of inconvenient because of the way we wobble around the sun, and the seasons last between 89 and 93 days, which makes it hard to compare seasonal statistics from one year to another. So I'm 56 years old, and I just found out that meteorologists, not just children, as I mean, like I grew up thinking of September as fall, but meteorologists, this is meteorological fall to them. It starts on September
2: 1st. That's infuriating. I'm not ready for it. <laughs> uh,
3: I, I like that because it does feel emotionally like fall whenever September 1st comes around because that's when the calendars start showing apples and pencils yes. and stuff like that. And yes. then that's what clicks my brain into fall mode. But I am with Erica in terms of I, I don't like that. It means the sun is going to go away.
1: Well, I will. I will go along with this only if we get to keep the sort of long actual summer into October and maybe early November, as I feel like we used to have back in the day, so to speak. Uh, so we can call it whatever we want, as long as it's still beautiful till Halloween. Very good. Okay, so it's
0: um, it's it's September anyway. By the way, we're I can I'm talking to to my friends here, to my my panelists. I'm looking at them because we're live streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook, so you can join us visually by searching for KUOW Public Radio. There. Okay. So after all that, we're going to start with some breaking news. Um, here we're we're on a week in review, and there's you know there's been this proposal for a city, Seattle City Charter Amendment. Supporters call Compassion Seattle. It uh, would call on the city to provide 2,000 units of permanent and emergency housing and keep public land clear of encampments. It was headed toward your ballot, but a King County judge ordered it removed from the ballot because basically it was outside the bounds of what the city can do, according to that judge. The uh, charter amendment group appealed, and Erica, you just told me that there is a decision.
2: Yeah, so as uh, as we were talking, I got an update from, um, from one of the campaign uh, folks on the anti-campaign, and um, apparently it has been uh, the lower court ruling has been upheld by the Court of Appeals. Um, the Compassion Seattle campaign appealed to a state court. Um, and so with the lower court ruling upheld, that effectively means that it won't be on the November ballot.
0: This doesn't go to the state Supreme Court?
2: I mean, theoretically it could, um, but uh, we haven't heard any, and we haven't heard anything from the um, campaign, the Compassion Seattle campaign yet, but they were already pretty reluctant to uh, appeal it in the first place. Um, both, I think, because of the the resounding nature of the Superior Court ruling, um, which is, you know, pretty much unequivocal. This is not at all remotely initiative uh, material, but also because there's a timing issue, they have to... Um, basically, you know, at this point, they have about a week stretching it, you know, a little less than two weeks um, to even conceivably uh, get it on the ballot in time for ballots to go out overseas. So okay. there's a there's a real time crunch that they'd okay. be facing if they tried to do that.
0: Now, this was supposed to be a big deal is a big deal in Seattle politics. And um, so how if it's not, uh, let's all talk about this, DJ, I'll start with you. If it's not, if Compassion Seattle is not going to be on the November ballot, how do you think that affects our we've, uh, mayoral campaign, city council, city attorney?
1: I, I actually think Compassion Seattle is on the November ballot because Bruce Harrell is running with a platform on homelessness that is well informed by the Compassion Seattle approach. So I think one of the interesting and noteworthy things that is happening is you're seeing citizens get more organized to promote policy and you're seeing what often will happen elected officials or or folks running for office will take those ideas and try to run with them it's like it's like a parade has formed and now our our candidates run to get in front of the parade and and you know try to carry the banner and and so uh i think actually compassion seattle is informing the positions of folks and that, and people will have an opportunity to vote on that in november
2: well yeah, Rip,
3: yeah go okay. ahead rich oh yeah i i just politically uh it also is kind of now immortalized as a thing that was going to be extremely popular i think that polling showed that 65 percent of of people uh, supported it, I think, of primary voters. And so it's something that um, Harold uh, can point to uh, and say, you know, look, this is extremely popular action on homelessness. Um, I am going to enact uh, as a mayor and that uh, may redound uh, to his benefit in terms of popularity. But it does also mean that Lorena Gonzalez doesn't have to run against Bruce Harrell and a pink rainbow at the same time. Although some of the money that went to the pink rainbow, which is the same compassion, Seattle um, mm-hmm. will likely go into uh, Bruce's, um, uh, the pack supporting uh, Harrell's campaign and, and to Harrell himself.
0: Why are you calling it a pink rainbow?
3: Well, because Compassion Seattle's, um, you know, logo uh, was uh, uh, a pink rainbow, but many hues of pink. You know, not mm. just a rose pink uh, or a sort of a light uh, pink, but you know, all of the 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 pinks in between. Right,
2: Erica. I think that um, this actually takes a lot of wind out of the sails of um, of the Compassion Seattle supporters, not just for the obvious reasons, but I think that they, um, and particularly Tim Burgess, um, former city council member who created a PAC um, two years ago to oppose a bunch of city council uh, candidates, I think that they really hope to influence the election by making this the topic. and. Um, failed ballot measures tend to fade from public consciousness uh, fairly quickly. I'm not saying that this one will fade in time for November, but you know, Bruce Harrell's entire uh, proposal that he rolled out yesterday um, in that press conference that you played some tape of um, is literally Compassion Seattle. He doesn't have any, any new ideas in that proposal. He's just saying, let's do everything that's in Compassion Seattle. So Um, I think Lorena Gonzalez will have to run against that. But, um, uh, you know, it's it's not the ballot measure anymore. And it frees her campaign to say, you know, here is actually our proposal for spending money without that money, you know, statutorily um, committed to pay for all this stuff that Compassion Seattle said it was going to pay for, which really is 2000 shelter beds. So it's kind of Lorena's ideas versus Bruce's ideas, as opposed to both of them campaigning yes or no on a very popular ballot measure, which, you know, was pretty likely to pass if polling was in the indication. So I think it just it, t- it gives the campaigns a little bit of more breathing room, particularly Lorena Gonzalez campaign, more breathing room to talk about her own issues. I think what
0: Seattle voters will want to know right now is what is at stake if I vote for this candidate versus this candidate, when it comes to people who don't have a home to homelessness policy, encampments, all that, what, who, who wants to start us off? What is, what is the choice between, not just between a candidate and a candidate, but, but uh, if, if, if candidates X and Y and Z win, what's, what happens that's different?
1: I think there's this sort of galvanizing thing. I think you know, now that Bruce Harrell's effectively adopted the Compassion Seattle position, it's a it's a different messenger, and it actually puts, I think, a different brand assignment to the message. Meaning, Compassion Seattle may have had a uh, uh, you know, voters may have I liked the idea, but Compassion Seattle as an organization, there was some like you know, sort of mixed uh, brand affiliation with the organization. Bruce Harrell is one of the two leading candidates for, for mayor. He's got a lot of supporters. So when he says the same things, I actually think it, it looks like this is a guy who has a plan. And I think that comes across because he can say, we're going to build X number of, of units in the first 90 days, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas uh, Lorraine Gonzalez has clearly been engaged in he- homelessness and housing policy uh, since she's been on the council, but, it's hard to discern what her plan is, even in, in the general sense, I think they probably are very aligned. But I think that Bruce now is able to sort of take this mantle of, I've, I've got a plan, it's concrete. If you vote for me, you know you're voting for someone with a plan. And Lorena has to come up with something that is comparable to say, here are you know, the two bullet points or the three bullet points that you have to know about me. And I think she's not, not there yet, at least in my estimation.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Bruce's problem is is going to be, I mean, you know, even if he does get elected on Compassion Seattle's plan, I mean, the second he gets into office, um, none of this is implementable by the mayor. Um, and he presumably knows that having served on the city council for 12 years. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I feel like it's a little bit early in the campaign to be saying, you know, Lorena Gonzalez doesn't have a plan. I assume that um, if she is, if her campaign gets, you know, uh, gets on it, they'll, they'll have a plan as well. I mean, I um, yeah, I just I, I think that saying Compassion Seattle's plan is now my plan is limited in how far it goes to, um, you know, to com- to compelling voters over to your side. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, P- Compassion Seattle, as I said, incredibly popular in you know their internal polling anyway. So uh, so you could be right. They could just uh, voters could just believe that they're voting for this plan, um, which was a mandate. Um, and so when I say that Bruce Harrell can't mandate it, I mean, it's it, it may be his proposal, but the council adopts budgets. And so he doesn't have a whole lot of power as mayor to make it happen. Well,
3: and yeah, to your point, um, uh, Bill, it does create um, uh, or at least Compassion Seattle wanted to create or intended to create these kinds of two slates of candidates. You know, those who uh, backed to Compassion Seattle and those who didn't on the way out, uh, at least in the last um uh, press statement uh, they gave when um, they, uh, the, the judge tossed out um, their, uh, their, their ballot. They said, you know, now you'll get to vote for uh, the people who uh, supported our measure uh, and you don't have to vote for the people who didn't. And, you know, those people include um, Bruce Harrell uh, uh, and Davidson uh, and Sarah Nelson uh, in the in in the city races, and so I see this as kind of just like a a, a different version of the 2019. 2019- uh, city council uh, races, where you had a lot of downtown uh, business groups uh, and developers supporting one slate of candidates, and then you had the progressive uh, slate of candidates. And this is just a, a redux. Uh, last time it was the chamber. Now the chamber, you know, su- supported um, the the business uh, candidates, uh, and uh, this time uh, the chamber also put a pink rainbow uh, over itself and. We have the same. Uh, we have the exact same political dynamic again. And then to the larger point about uh, you know who has a plan and who doesn't have a plan, I think that voters will be asked to decide whether or not you think you can solve um, uh, this problem with uh, a little one-time federal money and some philanthropy, or with, as McKinsey has told us uh, for several years now, a billion dollars extra every year for the next 10 years to spend on affordable housing. And I think that uh, Gonzalez's uh, idea of seeing uh, wealthy people is, and uh, corporations to pay their fair share, as she puts it, is more in line with her view uh, that the consultants uh, argue is necessary to adequately, adequately address the issue.
0: And is that taxing um, practical? Between voters and lawmakers and the, and the law regarding uh, taxing income here, is that viable?
3: Oh, I don't know uh, if they could tax. uh, Income doesn't seem likely. Um, uh, The court addressed that recently. I'm not quite sure what uh, uh, if a wealth tax is possible, but you could tweak the jumpstart tax or you could you could raise it, um, which Gonzalez has said uh, she'd like to do. And I don't know if that's going to scare away Amazon or or, uh, other sort of large uh, companies uh that uh don't like the tax uh you know because they plan to add another fourteen thousand jobs here uh in the city pretty soon, so mm-hmm. yeah, very good okay one one we're gonna talk um about covid of
0: course here in a bit here on the weekend review, but before we leave homelessness policy uh there is this uh, encampment that the city of Seattle says it cannot clear out, which is near Bitter Lake on school district property. Uh, Erica, what is, what's happening with that encampment now?
2: Yeah. So just a brief bit of background, the city says not just that it can't clear out the encampment, but that it won't or can't help anybody living there. Um, And so um, for weeks, uh, months, actually, the city and the school district have been in a stalemate where the city has said and Jenny Durkin, Mayor Jenny Durkin has specifically said they need to stand up their own homelessness system to um, using their reserves to uh, to to help all these folks and to clear out the encampment and secure it. So, um, the school district said they were gonna uh, they had a goal date of September first, first day of school uh, to clear it out. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, and in fact, the encampment has gotten larger over time, not smaller um, and um, and so now, you know, I think they're they're in a situation where they're saying four to six weeks. We're going to find we're going to find some solution. Um, I think there may be um, some a break in the logjam once some of the hotel rooms that the county is bringing online um, actually become available. There's a hotel just a few blocks away on Aurora that um, King County Executive Dow Constantine told me uh, that some of those those folks could you know potentially go to. So that would be um, that would help quite a bit. But you know the school districts in a in a in a tough spot because they've got a lot of parents um, who are very very upset. I went to two public meetings recently where parents are just screaming at um, Deputy School Su- Superintendent Rob Gannon and um, the uh, the one outreach worker who's been out there every day, um, Mike Mathias, who's with a group called Anything Helps, um, just you know saying we want these people gone and they're dangerous and you know they're they're gonna. Um, make it impossible for our kids to go to school, et cetera. Um, The uh, the encampment is on a piece of property behind an elementary school. It's not actually on school grounds.
0: So school is back. So has it turned out to be dangerous or impossible for kids to go to school?
2: Well, I mean, I think that, this is, the, I mean, like the whole issue that uh, Bruce Harrow was raising about the um, the kids, you know, running cross country. I mean, I, you know, I've walked through the area where people say it's impossible to run and it's not impossible to run. You just have to see tents. Um, and so I think, you know, it's it's really in the eye of the beholder. I mean, the school has put up tarps so that kids um, at the school itself don't have to see the encampment, you know, at the behest of parents. Um There certainly is, you know, a lot of conflict at the encampment. It's not um, it's not a great place to live, but um, there's I haven't seen any evidence that it's specifically dangerous for um, for children at the school next door. Um, I've seen a lot of fear from parents and a lot of anger that they can't use that that property because they've considered it a park for a long time, even though technically it's not a park at all.
0: OK, more on school, more on back to school in just a moment, because that happened this week. And that, that's the kind of stuff we review on this show. Anything more to say about homelessness policy for now, which probably is going to come up again real soon? OK, you no, know, yes. I would just yes, DJ
1: offer the comment that it, it continues to be striking to me that uh, now and for a long time, the most we will talk about mental health and we talk about getting people taken care of in their physical health. Uh, But for the vast majority of the homeless population, the most important partner for mental health and physical health is the state of Washington. And there is a wide gulf. If there's a wide gulf between the city and the school district, there's an even wider gulf between uh, the state of Washington, specifically the mental health system and the physical health system uh, paid for by Medicaid. And the folks who are actually doing the work to support folks who are housing insecure. In other words, if we want to go chase down money, there is a lot of money that can be chased down, funded primarily from the federal government, but also from the state to support mental health and physical health services, supporting supportive housing, for instance, is a program that is primarily funded, uh, uh, not entirely, but significantly funded through state federal match dollars that then flow down to the local level. Uh, that happens through health plans, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't see the city of Seattle. You don't see the county of King uh uh talking with the state nearly enough and in fact when you speak to them they will admit that the gulf is wide and they just don't even understand each other so the the solutions whatever they are is going to require the state and the state is still not really invited to this conversation
0: dj wilson is publisher of washington state wire and we've got erica c barnett from publicola rich smith of the stranger we're figuring out what happened this week um when, once the buses showed up, back-to-school happened this week. We'll talk about that and more when we come right back. Bill Radke here with our Week in Review panel. Journalists Erica C. Barnett, Rich Smith, and DJ Wilson on the first week of meteorological fall. You know who agrees with the meteorologists on that one is Children. And most public schools' uh, kids returned to school this week. At Seattle's Wing Luke Elementary, KUW reporter Kate Walters spoke to a student named Sophia Liu, Mohammed Krubali, and his mom, Nemeo, and Tony Davis.
2: How are you feeling today? Excited. Yeah.
3: Great. Yes, really great. Excited to be back? Yes. It feels <laughs> kind of different. As different, well. different as well. I'm just ready.
0: Of course, the masks are back on the kids and the teachers and the staff and uh, more about COVID here in a moment. One glitch in back to school was that Seattle Public Schools had bus delays of up to two hours. Apparently, it's a driver shortage and it's more than that, according to 18-year veteran bus driver Carrie Brakefield.
3: It's a lot harder than it normally is. We have a lot of drivers that aren't here anymore. We're learning a brand new system, so our our computer system doesn't match what our route books say. Our route books don't match what was supposed to be on the route, so it was a little chaotic this morning.
0: As for that driver shortage, the district's bus provider says it's hiring and training more drivers and they expect to be staffed up by October. And I know this is a big task, and maybe this is actually common around the country, but, but how do you have such a lack of drivers that you're running an hour,
3: two hours late on day one, Rich? It's a good question. And, uh, you know, the uh, uh, first student, um, one of the uh, bus driving companies was trying to uh, head that off at the pass by offering a driver's $3,000 signing bonuses, uh, if you already had your commercial licenses. First uh, student
0: just- is the name of the company, the, the contractor that, that handles the bus transportation.
3: That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they, you know, they, they tried to sweeten the pot uh, to get some more uh, drivers uh, to staff up ahead of the school year, but it sounds like that wasn't enticing enough uh, to put people back on the buses. And yeah, just to uh, add to what the uh, that, that driver was saying, uh, COVID has made it a much more difficult uh, job. There's a lot more uh, cleaning and safety. Uh, precautions you have to take in addition to, um, uh, the kids around, uh, and you're, you know, I mean, you can ventilate pretty well, but you know, it's close quarters and it's a lot. (laughs) So so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a a rough uh, gig in a scary time.
0: Yeah. I would imagine it'd be harder to get kids to, if, if kids don't want to wear a mask, I'd imagine they have more chance to, uh, to uh, uh, act on that on a bus than when they're when they're sitting in their desks with their hands yeah. folded neatly as we know they do, Parent DJ Wilson. Uh, we were we were talking about uh, DJ and I are the are the kid havers here, and it's just you know there are obviously parts of the state or even the city I'm sure where uh, where the masks it's a it's a big deal it's considered a big intrusion on our on our children and. And yet to mine, I think you were saying the same thing, DJ. It's just barely registers. Yeah, they've been wearing a mask for well over a year. And it's just, uh, it's not a thing. Is that what you're finding?
1: Yeah, I think the kids, you know, on this score have totally adapted. It's like you said, not even a thing. And and the younger they are, the more they just think this is, you know, this is normal. My six-year-old is like, yeah, why wouldn't? I mean, obviously I wear a mask. And, and even my uh, 14-year-old has just very... I mean, he will still wear masks when I might not. And uh, he's just kind of internalized. And the hope is, right, that they've internalized hey, this is really easy versus hey, this is really scary. And, you know, there's this sort of idea that there's there's this thing in healthcare called an adverse childhood experience. And the more of these adverse childhood experiences you get, the more it correlates to significant health deficiencies in your life. Like you're higher, more likely to get uh, diabetes and to be obese and abuse uh, and misuse drugs and alcohol. Things like, uh, were you ever hungry growing up? Did your mother ever experience violence in the home? These kinds of things. And there's an argument that now, having experienced COVID could be one of these adverse childhood experiences where it's just going to be one point against our kids. So, you know, sending them back to school uh, it's a little bit of a, it's always kind of hard as a parent because the kids you know have to get up earlier now and they're all crying and grumpy and fighting. And it's just a headache in the transition, but it's just a little scary to, you just kind of have to trust. And I think this is a central piece of our society today. We have to trust that our institutions are going to take care of us and 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 do what is right and a lot of times institutions are not doing that they're letting us down and now if our schools we we trust our schools are going to take care of our kids but if if something goes sideways our kids are going to pay the price in a way that you know so far we have thought only our adult population is going to have to pay the price for covid now kids are you know going to take some of that hit
0: We'll say more about COVID in a moment here. And, uh, and I also want to hear about a story that, that Rich filled us in on when it comes to uh, the Bellevue uh, school district elections. Uh, Erica, anything to add before we move to that on, I know, I know you're not a kid haver. Um, I noticed that there are- <laughs> Please, Bill, we, we prefer breeder. Sorry, not a breeder. <laughs> you're a non-breeder. Yeah. So anything you want to say here?
2: I mean, I think, you know, I, I hope that the, once I hope that there is a vaccine for children or a vaccine dosage for children soon, um, I, you know, and I also um, echo what you were saying early on. I mean, it, it does feel like um, Seattle schools had a little uh, lack of foresight. On this uh, on this situation, um, I, I can only imagine what it's like um, not having kids, but um, to suddenly have to scramble to figure out alternative transportation, especially if you're um, one of those many workers that have to, uh, you know, go into an office or a workplace um, and can't just kind of drop everything and drive your kid to school every morning. Um, you know, it's I, it's been the the response has been um, a little bit nonchalant, I think, and you know, the school district saying, "Don't worry, we'll have it figured out." in a couple months. Um, You know, what happens in those couple months when, you know, you're having yet another burden added to your schedule? Um, I just, you know, I really feel for for parents who are having to deal with this right now.
0: Yeah, agreed. I might just add, I I
1: think this is a real ticking time bomb for the school districts. Because if you look at a state like Florida, there are now more kids uh, under the age of uh, 18 and younger that have covid than adults. If you look at a place like Alaska that has gone back to school, they are seeing uh, a doubling and trebling of cases amongst kids with COVID. And in here in Washington State, now that we're just starting this, I think it's reasonable to expect that we are not going to be different from any place else, that we are likely to have a significant increase in uh, kids that get COVID. And, and, and for the most part, they'll be fine, I should say. This is not a scare tactic. But when you have a classroom of one or two or three kids getting COVID, it used to be the case that that would send everybody home and that we would not teach in the, in the, in the classroom. Uh, but yet the coming back in to class without having very clear understandings of how we're going to have tele-education or distance remote education, uh, it feels like we are woefully ill-prepared for what's coming three or four weeks from now where you're going to have to send everybody home, but we are not really ready. Our teachers are not ready. Our classrooms are not really ready to have some sort of hybrid education model. So we're going to, if, we, if we can't manage buses because of Delta, we're going to have a heck of a hard time managing this
0: since we've since we're on covid i i want to catch listeners up here this is a kow's week in review we've got most state employees and 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 teachers and healthcare workers required to be fully vaccinated by mid october or lose their jobs this week, the biggest state workers union challenged that mandate in court. This is the Washington Federation of State Employees. They want more bargaining power over how the mandate gets implemented, what kind of exemptions there are. There were protests across our state, meanwhile, against COVID mandates in Olympia. Saturday, hundreds of people were at the state capitol. This is the health department worker, Trisha Gilson, telling the crowd that this mandate's unconstitutional.
2: I want to tell you that we need to be prepared to be fired. Okay, we need to be prepared, prepared to be replaced. It won't work well for them. I'm going to tell you right now. now. It will not. And we need to hold strong. We need to stay strong.
0: Does anyone think these uh, protests and lawsuits are what? What do you think is the biggest uh, material effect, if any, uh, that these are going to have on on policy?
1: I think one of the big. There are, there's sort of two, I think, big questions related to the Washington Education Association and the Washington Federation of State Employees, the big public employee unions. One is, are they going to continue to be the primary funders of Democratic campaigns heading into a midterm election that does not look good for Democrats? Um, are they going to, Is this going to become man, or manifest in some way that would erode that traditional support? I'm not sure that it will. Uh, and the second one is, will this Foster a conversation about emergency powers with the executive branch, the governor specifically. He's had emergency powers uh, related to things like this. Uh, obviously since uh, March or April or March of last year. Uh, which allows him to circumvent the collective bargaining process. Uh, And so that's how he can make uh, these directives and mandates. Uh, By the way, those are different things, directives and mandates. It goes around the collective bargaining process because of these emergency emergency powers. Many, this is a bipartisan concern in in Olympia, Republicans and Democrats. And heading into the legislative session, both Democrats and Republicans senior leaders said they wanted to have a conversation about emergency powers That fizzled. Uh, Democrats did not take that up in a public way uh, during the session. And so the the second question is, will the state employees, public employee unions, force a conversation about emergency powers because of this, because of any potential rulings by judges? Or are we just going to be in an emergency power situation indefinitely? And um, that's a conversation, an important policy conversation that many want to have that just has not yet taken place.
2: I sort of, uh, you know, I, I would kind of flip that a little bit. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, what what state employees are sort of threatening to do. And I'm thinking specifically of the the ferry workers who, you know, are, are staging these sick outs because they don't want to get vaccinated. Um, I mean, they are essentially threatening to shut down a state highway um that's what the ferries are and, uh, and and in fact not just threatening but shutting down routes because of a lack of you know of people to work on those ferries and that is the ferry system
0: closed down reservations because of the, yeah. the for the Labor Day weekend yeah sorry yeah
2: and and that i mean that that impacts people's mobility that impacts you know uh, huge populations of people who need to go to and from the islands that you know it that that are out there in the Puget Sound um, and think of, uh, the, think of the small businesses erica as well yeah, yeah, and and so I think that you know by doing this, I mean the 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 union the unionized state workers are saying uh, you know we don't care about that, and I mean it's it's as if I mean think about how angry everybody was when just the West Seattle Bridge it was shut down for so long and and is still shut down. Um, and there's an alternative route, right? I mean, you are you are telling people on the islands that they don't matter, and um, and so I think that there may be a significant backlash against state workers, and and you know this is also happening at the city um, where the unions are challenging uh, the vaccine mandate as well, not just um, the Seattle Police Union, which you might expect because they have a very high number of cops that are unvaccinated, but but the the association, you know, the the other city unions. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've, we've tried carrots to get people vaccinated. We've had lotteries we've given, you know, I mean, we meaning society at large, um, companies, et cetera, um, given away free beer, given away free money. And eventually you do have to have the stick of some sort of requirement. Um, kids have to get vaccinated to go to school and, um, and, you know, their parents and adults should adult up and, um, and do this. So um, maybe I'm just expressing my own frustration here at the fact that you know summer uh, plans have been ruined um, by uh, by the fact that people refuse to get vaccinated. But I think that a lot of people um, are like me running out of patience with um, with this sort of uh, demonstration and and refusal, um, particularly by, you know, by state employees uh, and public employees and public-facing employees like like ferry workers um, who are essentially also refusing to uh, protect the people that they come into contact with every day.
3: Yeah, I, I just I, I understand the kind of um, uh, d- intense desire to bargain the impacts of the vaccine mandates, making sure people have uh, the day off uh, within uh, to get the vaccine um, if they haven't already. Uh, And I understand that this comes in a context of being at the bargaining table, the boss never gives you an inch. And so you have to, you know, you can't give them an inch um, uh, uh, whenever they change your working conditions. (laughs) And so, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to that unsympathetic position. But, you know, the the lawsuits, the sh- you know, shutting down the ferry system over Labor Day weekend. I yeah, I, I agree. I think that might be a, a losing a public uh, uh, battle or you know, PR battle. Um, and I worry about the, you know, the kind of squeaky wheel uh, fallacy. There was a, a new poll um, uh, earlier this week from Axios and Ipsos uh, nationally says that the the vaccine mandates are driving up the numbers of people who say they'll they'll get vaccinated. So, uh, I think that the more we see other companies and, uh, you know, airlines uh, 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 implement, you know, requiring a proof of vaccination in order to use uh, their services or, 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 or walk around, um, uh, the more compliance you'll get. Uh,
0: speaking of uh, someone talked about ruining summer plans, which reminded me that there's also a new uh, starting Tuesday in King County If your uh, summer plans include a big outdoor gathering, 500 people plus, you know how you now have to wear a mask, Uh, vaccinated or not. This is the King County Public Health Officer, Jeff Duchin, reminding us of the outbreak at the Gorge concert. Although the risk for COVID-19
1: spread is much lower outdoors than indoors, the risk is higher at large, crowded outdoor events where distancing cannot be maintained, where unvaccinated people are present. And especially where there's loud talking, shouting, singing, or aerobic activity.
0: No, you, no I can't go to my mass aerobic activity gathering uh, of more than 500 people. And but, Rich, this does fall on uh, Tuesday, so so does that mean it doesn't affect uh, Pride Fest and other stuff going on this weekend?
3: I guess not technically, but I don't know. Walking, you know, Pride Fest is, uh, will take over Broadway and is largely, uh, you know, a Capitol Hill uh, phenomenon this weekend. Um, and then you've got the day-in, day-out fest, the new uh, music festival, I think, down at the the Seattle Center. So there will be sort of large gatherings of people in the area um, uh, doing a lot of aerobic exercises, one way to put it, and, uh, and singing and, and shouting uh, as well. Around the neighborhood, I see a lot of people masking when they're walking around outside anyway. So I think you'll see a lot of compliance even before um, uh, the the mandate officially uh, kicks in. So I don't see a huge issue there. I think that, you know, Seattle gets it like you know like the delta is is bad and super virulent and uh you should wear a mask and uh you know if you're around a bunch of people outside you don't want to be part of a super spreader event and so you know you'll toss a mask on we've been doing this for a year and a half what's another few more months you know
1: Yeah. I like to think, uh, I, I, I agree with you and yet I went to a Seattle Seahawks preseason game the other day and, uh, it, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't feel great. Uh, it really tested my kind of like comfort about, you know, everything I think I know it was outdoors. Great ventilation. Great. Uh, but there were probably 45, 50,000 people in that stadium and, you know, maybe I saw a mask Maybe, maybe not indoors. There were more and the, 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 directions were that when you're indoors, you needed to wear a mask. And, uh, uh, but you know, there's, there's a lot of, I, I got a bet based on the demographics that there are a lot of white dudes in there who, uh, don't want to get vaccinated. And now they're going to be screaming and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just ripe for a, a massive super spreader event, which I know the, governor doesn't want to shut down sports because there's a lot of a lot of blowback and issues and all kinds of stuff there um and we're all trying to kind of muddle through this but uh any organization including ours that has had to make decisions about in-person events doesn't want to have to deal with those and yet still does and i'm i'm i i i Understand it's a difficult decision, but I'm very surprised that the Seahawks are still going to have 67,000 people at their home opener in in September. And if all they have to do is wear masks, you know, maybe that's maybe that's enough uh, that uh, 67,000 people won't get each other sick, or or maybe not. And then we won't really know until you know the first part of October, um, uh, and then we won't really know if hospitalizations result until middle of October, and then we're halfway through the season, and it. It feels like we've kind of uh, left the barn door open at that point.
2: I avoid all um, outdoor uh, sporting events as a matter of course. So um, I know you do, I, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, so it's, so that's an interesting perspective that I don't have. I went to a storm game uh, recently inside, but it was, you know, they were checking, they had a vaccinated section and at the time, you know, there was no mandate to, um, to wear masks um, in that section and and in that venue. Um, but, you know, I would certainly balk at going to a giant, massive, you know, tens of thousands of people event um, right now. Um, on the other hand, you know, we saw last summer before there was a vaccine available that there were protests that happened, um, you know, every single day for months on end, and there wasn't um, a massive, you know, the super spreader event um, among any of them. So, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't entirely um understand the risk analysis that dr. duchin is doing um but you know i I abide by whatever dr. duchin says and you know and abide by all of the all of the mandates um, but i I feel pretty low risk of going to a sporting event right now anyway
3: yeah it seems like they were most he was they they were citing that big country concert in the in the gorge where yeah. people were just outside but like packed in close and then that became a super spreader event so mm-hmm. I think that that's like leading these conversations i'm with i don't see myself going to a sport event uh anytime soon um or really any large event though i do must convince i all right i must admit that i went to the renaissance fair what was it last week or the week before last yeah and I agree with DJ. I felt like nervous to be <laughs> around people. It was about half mask, half not. So that that that's that'll tell you what the nerds are, uh, where the nerds are at on this. Uh, and uh, <laughs> but it, it, I don't know. I just had a a visceral or emotional response to being around. You know, uh, even a kind of group of maybe uh, 150, 200 people uh, watching some uh, people pretend to joust each other.
0: I would think the Renaissance Fair would would remind you of how short lives used to be at that time anyway. You know, just it, re- really
3: I was I was trying to manifest post plague uh-huh, uh you uh-huh. know jovialness, <laughs> yeah. you know, with the Renaissance festival. Um, but um, you know, um it may have failed given the Delta's resurgence. By the way, the athletes don't have
0: to wear COVID masks, right? I mean, aren't they in they are they are by definition in the event that has 500 plus people, is it because the field is less, uh, I'll bet there's 500 people. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many hundreds of people there are, but the players and the refs and the coaches and the staff and the, and the bench warmers and the cheerleaders and the media and the, but they don't have to wear masks, right?
1: That's correct. Uh, And I have to go actually go back and look at whether uh, King County's Guidance is a directive, which is sort of like telling us what to do, or a mandate, which is requiring us uh, to do something. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Um, But it doesn't uh, apply to the to the uh, to the folks on the field, and they get tested every every day, for better or worse. Uh, I will say one of the things that we, I think, where Doctor Duchin's coming from, uh, is is subtle, and I think we. We, not to speak for him, but I think sometimes we overlook what the data tells us. The data remains; it remains the case that if you're vaccinated, uh, you are unlikely to get COVID, and if you get COVID, it remains the case that you are unlikely to have significant symptoms, very, very unlikely to die. Uh, I think the latest report I had it up here earlier is like 180. People, 187 people in Washington State have had a breakthrough case uh, since vaccinations nine months ago, and have have died. Uh, so there's it's a very small number, but that we now have 88 percent, 89 percent of our ICU beds are now occupied. Uh, we've had a 50 percent increase in ICU utilization in the last two weeks for COVID. Uh, so our we don't actually have very many more ICU beds. And so King County, meaning most of the, the, the sort of 11% that we have left are beds, not necessarily staff beds because we don't have enough staff sometimes to actually keep a bed open. So we probably have something less than 11% of our beds remaining. And King County has still got really good numbers in terms of per capita, but the rest of Washington State Alaska, Montana, Idaho, they are sending folks here. And so if we're at 88, 90% uh, of our bed utilization already, and COVID ICU utilization is increasing by 50% over two weeks, it means that when you, ha- when you go into cardiac arrest, there's no place to take you. It means that when you break your arm and you have a compound fracture, and maybe you've got an arterial uh, 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 bleeding situation, like, you know, there might not be places at the, at the hospital to take care of us. So Mm -hmm. we can feel some based on the data, some still good comfort that being vaccinated will protect us from the worst case scenarios that this, I never want to be a fear monger on this stuff, but some people who are still not getting vaccinated are crowding up hospitals, which makes the people that we care about uh, puts them in danger. If they go into some of these other acute medical symptoms.
0: Yeah. Okay. That is uh, information mongerer DJ Wilson with Washington State Wire, and uh, we've also got Erica C. Barnett from Publicola, Rich Smith from The Stranger, and we've got to take a break and come back. I want to see if there's any local effect of the uh, of the Supreme Court non ruling, sort of the upholding uh, by back door of this Texas abortion law, and we'll figure out what's making us smile when we return in just a moment. Coming toward the end of Week in Review now, uh, outside of Washington, the U.S. Supreme Court this week allowed America's most restrictive abortion ban to stand. For now, the Texas law bans abortions after six weeks, no exception for rape or incest. Governor Inslee uh, put out a statement saying, in part, quote, we are fortunate that this has no impact on people seeking an abortion in Washington. Uh, uh, Erica, how will this affect Washingtonians? There's, there's some activity going on here in Washington, right?
2: Well, it's—I um, mean—it's easy to think that it won't affect us because we do have a guaranteed, you know, right to um, to safe and legal abortion here in Washington State. But um, you know, I mean, there are spillover effects and always have been from uh, from other states. Idaho, for example, actually has um, an unenforceable um, law that that is from pre Roe times that bans abortion. That is, you know, that is on the books and could come back into effect. Um, you know if this ultimately results in Roe being overturned, um, and so um, so, there, so that is that is an impact that you know we don't often think about, but uh, you know it it isn't simply the case that people can go to other states or you know just kind of flood into neighboring blue states like Washington, you know, like uh, the states bordering Texas, which are you know not not actually um, blue states, but um, but you know in any case. We don't have a lot of, um, we don't have a huge uh, surplus of access to abortion here. Um, it isn't the case that we have, you know, tons of clinics that are just waiting for a flood of patients from, from out of state to um, to come in and take up empty slots. And so um, it's, uh, again, it's, it's easy for us to feel like we are isolated out here in our little blue um, bubble of wonderfulness. But... Um, what, what impacts um, Texas and what impacts Mississippi, um, which has, you know, an actual case that could officially overturn Roe on, you know, on the docket for next year, um, it does, it does have spillover impacts. I mean, I think, you know, one thing people who support, support abortion rights here in Washington state can do is give to abortion funds that, um, that help people in, in red states and in Texas in particular right now. Um, But I think it's, you know, I think it's inaccurate to suggest that, um, that we are, you know, sort of, I mean, I I worked for uh, pro choice, uh, Washington, pro choice, Washington for about a year. um, And so I'm acutely aware of, uh, of the situation that women often find themselves in, um, from from neighboring states, trying to get here and trying to get an abortion and trying to pay for it.
3: Mm -hmm. Rich, anything to add? Well, yeah, even within um, Washington, um, uh, abortion providers uh, and advocates will tell you that, you know, abortions cost a lot. And depending on where you live in the state, uh, it's uh, hard to get to a clinic. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we have a, a abortion fund here, Northwest Abortion uh, Access Fund, and they try to close the gap by um, you know paying for uh, the balance of, of abortions if people can't make the payment or arranging uh, transport to those, uh, clinics. And, uh, in an interview, um, with one of the, dir- the directors there, they expressed some concern, uh, about the Texas law basically being used by other, uh, other States kind of copying, um, the, the, the Texas law, um, specifically Idaho. Uh, they had a, a trigger law, as uh, Erica mentioned uh, on the books, it wasn't triggered by this, um, uh, Supreme court, uh, refusing to, um, to act on this, uh, Texas law. But, you know, if they want to act quickly in January, that is the lawmakers there and pass uh, a bill that also is designed to, uh, subvert a judicial scrutiny, um, then that could raise some real challenges for, uh, the people who work at the abortion, uh, fund here. Um, They'll have to decide, you know, if there's a $10,000 bounty uh, on uh, anyone's head caught aiding and abetting uh, a, a person, a pregnant person seeking an abortion, then they'll have to decide, you know, 60% of the uh, Northwest Abortion Access Fund's clientele uh, live in Idaho. So they'll have some hard choices to make um, about a majority of the, the, the people that they serve. Um, and of course, a lot of... Um, uh, of people uh fly into Washington uh who need later abortion uh services. Uh so that might see an uptick um uh of those uh, cases here too.
0: We are right at the end of the show um uh, at which we uh, which we always end by giving someone a reason to smile, anything uh hopeful and rainbowish that uh, came to mind this week.
3: Oh, I just wanted to say that in the Seattle Times piece on um uh the Bruce Harrell's uh the press conference uh, at the encampment, there's a little bumblebee on his arm and he r- appeared at least in the photo unfazed by the bumblebee on his arm. And I've been smiling, thinking about whether or not I want a mayor who is unfazed by a bumblebee or who flips out, you know, when a bumblebee mm. is near both pros and cons. Either both way. reactions. Sure. Yeah. I respect both reactions, you know, and I don't know if myself, if I am a flipper outer or a calm person, I, I have been both in the past. So that's, you know, there's a spectrum as have I.
0: Uh, okay, we uh, Erica C, we've got to go. We're overtime. Uh, I'm just giving you, you an actual
2: <laughs> smile. That's all,
0: and that's what I needed. Thank you, Erica C Barnett, Publicola publisher and editor. Rich Smith, associate editor at The Stranger. DJ Wilson, publisher at Washington State Wire. Uh, and uh, thanks to Teo Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza for helping uh, get them up there on the computer. Uh, live streaming, thanks to Alec Cowan and Sarah Leibovitz. And uh, we'll do it again next week. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks, Bill.
2: Thanks. Thanks.